You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastelblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rob, where he had prepared a detailed framework as to why he believes that trend-following wins the KGAR race compared to other strategies that seemingly look better on a risk-adjusted basis until, of course, you start to dig into the details. I also would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Kevin Coldine spoke to author James Falk, uh, who has written a very interesting book about the financial cold war that we are experiencing between the US and China. And he does that from the perspective of someone who's born and raised in Hong Kong and who actually worked for the parent company of the LME Exchange, which, as many of you know, had a serious issue uh, with a few months ago uh, where it looks like they had a plan to bail out a large Chinese tycoon at the expense of other investors. Anyways, Alan, great to be on the podcast with you, as always. How are you doing? How are things in Dublin this morning? Great. Uh, good morning, Neil. So all, all is, is, is very well over here. Um, beautiful uh, summer sunshine and uh, just watched Ireland beating the All Blacks this morning. So that was... Uh, um, a, a monumental win for, for the Irish. So we're, we're delighted about that. Nothing like a win like that to cheer you up, right? <laughs> exactly. So um, on the economic front, the uh, Fed Governor Chris Waller, he tipped his cards this week on Thursday regarding the Friday unemployment report, saying the robust labor market gave him confidence in the strength of the US economy. And the report showed that the economy did indeed add 372,000 new jobs in June, well ahead of the 265,000 that was expected. Given the anecdotal weakness we've been witnessing, it was expected that the jobs figures would disappoint. His comment on the jobs was in addition to him saying that he favored another 75 basis points hike later in the month. That rate hike recommendation was echoed, by the way, by the St. Louis Fed president, James Bullard, and both are voters on the Rate Decision Committee. Contradicting the headline number, the Household Service showed a decline in the labor force of 353,000 jobs, but from the media's perspective, the Establishment Survey is the go-to number, and Friday's report will undoubtedly be supportive of 75 basis points high that Waller and Bullard are calling for. Early in the week, the minutes of the June FOMC meeting were released, and the tone was decidedly hawkish, arguing for another 75 basis points hike at the July meeting. The flaw in that logic, though, is that the minutes are three weeks old. And since the rate hike, um, economic strength has clearly cooled. And many of the runaway commodity markets have come off uh, the boil, as has the demand for mortgages. Now, the Atlanta Fed GDP now, a real-time economic forecasting tool, registered a minus 1.86% uh, for Q2 GDP. And if that forecast comes to pass when GDP is released later this month, the US will officially have been in a recession for the entire uh, time of 2022. And the Fed has been tightening into it and continues to do so. The fact makes the employment discrepancy more relevant. Now, looking into next week, investors will likely face down another worsening inflation um, report on Wednesday with CPI set to rise 1.1% month-on-month and 8.8% year-on-year. Second quarter earnings will also begin to trickle in as well with JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley both reporting on Thursday and Citibank reporting on Friday. And no doubt investors will be listening closely as the three CEOs offer their assessment of the economy and the consumer. But let me get back to you, Alan, um, despite, or not despite, but in addition to the rugby, what have you been uh, focusing on the last uh, few weeks since we last spoke? Yeah, it's interesting, uh, as you touch on, I mean, we've seen some interesting trend shifts in the markets, you know, corrections of, of some of the major trends and, and reversals elsewhere. So, as you say, in terms of the commodity markets, a lot of those uptrends which had been in place, uh, you know, since um, since the end of COVID or since 2020, have now uh, reversed. So, particularly copper and uh, some of the grains, 
oil starting to top out maybe hasn't weakened uh, as much as some of the others yet. And and in the fixed income markets, obviously, we've seen a correction too. So it's it's interesting how, you know, we had that burst of, you know, pessimism around inflation immediately after the last CPI print. But since the FOMC meeting, the market is, you know, um, it seems to be more worried about growth than inflation now all of a sudden. Um, so that's that's an interesting dynamic. Um, I, you know, obviously, from a trend perspective, you know, trend following is agnostic. Interesting that, you know, performance has held up even in the face of those corrections and reversals. And that's probably because, you know, we've seen a very strong trend in the US dollar, which has, um, you know, dollar index breaking out, the euro down to 101. Uh, so so really, we've had this kind of baton being handed over uh, through the markets throughout this year, you know, from one market to the next in terms of which ones are trending, and now it's currencies. And, and actually, you know, it, it had been one of the unusual features of this period that we'd seen that dollar rally and commodities rising at the same time because you know many times throughout history we've tended to see commodities going up when the dollar is going down and vice versa so we're probably back into a more normal relationships between commodities and the dollar at the moment but but certainly that's what the market is saying there's more of concern about growth of course the irony about all of this if there's too much of a concern about growth and, and yields fall, that eases financial conditions, which is not really what the Fed wants at the moment. So as you say, the minutes are very hawkish. And I, I thought it was noteworthy they were talking about taking policy too restrictive and then possibly even more restrictive. So certainly the tune from the Fed is hawkish and getting more hawkish, even though the market is getting more worried about growth. It's very strange, I have to say. And and there are so many of the people that I have a lot of respect for that are completely in disagreement as to what's going to happen next. And I have to say, if as I was trying to look at it from a quote-unquote fundamental point of view as to where things stand six months from now, I really wouldn't have a clue. And I'm so grateful, really, that uh, that's not what we need to worry about. We just need to uh, worry about the uh, you know the price and react to that. Funnily enough, um, on, on that note, and I tweeted about this this week, not that I do many tweets, uh, frankly, but I did hear uh, Tony Robbins actually in, an in, in a recent interview talk about how leaders anticipate and uh, and losers react and i was thinking about that i think that's funny because in in in, in investing that's in my opinion completely opposite <laughs> of course being biased because trend mm. followers react we don't anticipate anything um so anyways just a yes. little little does, funny doesn't story carry, does, doesn't necessarily carry over into investing i guess was your point no no, I mean, I've met few people, I would say, that consistently anticipate correctly, let's put it that mm. way, but there we are. Now, from a trend-following point of view, um, just trying to give a little bit of an update for the week, I have to say, I uh, I was thinking about it this morning, and I think this week might be pretty hard to call in terms of industry performance, in the sense that I've heard some people say, including some of our co-hosts here, that it was really tough week this week, mostly because of the sell-off in many of the commodity markets like the energies and the grains. But then on the other hand, uh, as you refer to, um, you know, we did see a, a pretty strong dollar that should generally be good for trend followers. That's because that's along with the major trends right now. And we also saw a little bit of a pickup in the downtrend of fixed income markets this week uh, in the last few days in particular. That should also be helpful. Um, and so... And then the other thing actually I thought of was that maybe next week we might get a little bit of support for energy markets because I noticed that uh, Russia is going to turn off all the gas uh, to Europe on Monday because they do this every year. They do like a 10-day maintenance thing on the, I guess it's the pipelines. Um, but I did notice that some people actually are worrying that they're never going to turn it back on again. <laughs> and then, of course, Europe will be in a very tough uh, situation and I have a feeling that prices on gas at least will be uh, uh, going higher. We'll see. In other sectors, I really don't expect that there was a lot of impactful performance uh, this week. But, you know, we are in some kind of transition phase right now. So even subtle differences in system design and risk management could make up for some return dispersion at the moment, uh, I guess. But when I look at the industry numbers, which I'll come to in a minute, it does overall looked like the week uh, was, you know, not too bad, maybe, maybe a little bit down on our own side, actually, it was pretty, you know, it was actually a little bit up. So 
I, yeah, we'll see how it all pans out. My own trend barometer finished the week at 52, so that's still in the positive territory, suggesting that the environment is still okay for trend following. But let me just do the rundown of the numbers and we'll see where they are. Beta 50 index, and these are as of Thursday, down half a percent for the month of Ju- uh, July, uh, up 15.95% for the, for the year. Uh, Sockgen CTA index also down almost half a percent, 47 basis points, uh, up 20.57 for the year. Trend index down 76 basis points, up 27.99 for the year. And the short-term traders index up 0.42% for the month and up 11.82 for the for the year. Um, you know, comparing that to the MSCI World Index, that's up two and a quarter for the month so far, but still down 19 and a half for the year. And the World Government Bond Index down again this month, down 20 bips. And that's, I think, the eighth month in a row it's down. So uh, definitely fixed income markets are struggling. And we've got some, we we, we, we got a really good question in um, from uh, Mathis. And then we got another question in uh, from Eduardo. And they are somewhat related. And they're actually also somewhat related to some stuff that you had thought about uh, bringing up. So I think it's going to be one big conversation today Hmm. about this topic. And I actually think it's a great topic because I think it's um, something that uh, a lot of investors are thinking about right now. Maybe how do we, you know, how do we design our portfolios overall for uh, the environment we're heading into and and how do we combine different type of strategies um, to better withstand uh, some of these uh, shifts that we see in the economy and so on and so forth. So I think what I'll do, uh, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to read Mathis, and I hope I pronounce your name correctly, Mathis, questions uh, first. That will lead us into uh, sort of the question from Eduardo, but also going to lead us into the papers that you have, and then I'm just going to let you run with it, and then I'll try and, and, and keep up, so to speak. So let me let me go into the first question here and set the the tone of of, of the conversation. Uh, Matthew's right. Thank you so much for all your wonderful podcasts. I feel like I've learned so much from them. I'm a computer scientist working on topics relating to statistical computing. So the approach of building a simple automated system that is optimized based on backtest while avoiding overfitting is very appealing to me. I've been working on implementing my own system mostly for fun right now, but hopefully it will one day get to the point where I can use it in practice. For now, I have a couple of questions relating to investing through other managers uh, and... I haven't been able to find the answers in your podcast so far. So question number one, um, what are your thoughts about return stacking, the idea of an overlay of trend following on a margin account that holds a diverse portfolio of stocks and perhaps bonds as discussed by Corey Hofstein and the Resolve uh, and Apperson teams? Um, Number two, relating to that, how should we think of the risk to such stacked portfolio where we have stocks and other risky assets in our margin account rather than cash? How do we we determine how much stacking is responsible and where it becomes too much leverage? For example, I've heard of people who have a portfolio of 100% small cap value stocks with effectively an overlay of 100% managed futures uh, in this setup. Isn't that incredibly risky in terms of actual blowing up? Um, The risk I care about is being wiped out, not so much volatility. And then he goes on to say, relating to my question, perhaps a natural third question would come up in the discussion, namely number three, uh, is an overlay slash return stacking approach only responsible for trend systems that targets a particular volatility? So we have some idea of the size of the margin requirement uh, brackets, so not safe with a system like Jerry's. Um, I would also be grateful if you could discuss some of these questions in a future podcast uh, to point me in to past podcasts if you've already already discussed them before. Well, actually, Matthews, we, we, we've kind of touched on them before, but not maybe as a specific topic. So I, I'll be, we'll be very happy to deal with this because I think it's actually a really great topic. Um, let me set the stage a little bit uh, for you, Alan, before you jump in on this, because this concept of return stacking, so to speak, of combining things with trend following you know, obviously, I've also noticed that there are some papers that's been written about about it in, in the last couple of years. And it's kind of been put forward as kind of this new idea, this novel idea of you can do this. But I just want to share a little anecdotal uh, his, his story 
because to me, this is not new at all. And it's, it's funny because actually when I worked for Jerry back in the mid-90s, we we almost did this. Uh, we, we called it Portable Alpha. And our idea was to take the return of an S&P 500 um, and just overlay one of uh, Chesapeake's um, st- strategies, uh, not the diversified one, but they had a one that called financials and metals, I think, and just uh, overlay that. So this idea, this concept of adding, quote-unquote, trend-following or managed futures to traditional assets as a as an overlay or, an, or a very cash-efficient way of of doing this and, and obviously getting the benefits that I'm sure you'll touch on, to me is not new, but... I do agree that there is more talk about it now than before, and I do recognize some of the great work uh, that Corey and and the Result guys have, have done, as well as the Apperson teams. Uh, so, uh, and there are others out there that I'm sure I'm forgetting right now. Um, and of course, uh, Eric uh, over at Standpoint, they've done something similar, uh, which we've discussed. So. Um, so not new to me, maybe new to many people listening to us today, but I think it's an interesting idea, it's an interesting concept. So I'm I'm very curious uh, to hear your thoughts on on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, agree with you, Niels. It's not a new concept. It, I think I think it is a new label. I think that's what what was uh, really valuable and interesting about the piece from Corey and Newfound Research and Resolve. It was putting this uh, return stacking um, label on it, which I think people found um, quite informative. Um, But as you say, um, plenty of managers have been running these strategies going back a couple of decades. I think it's probably been something that has been you know, uh, in the managed futures uh, domain, and now it's maybe going a bit more mainstream. I think that's the point. You know, I think there's certainly merit to it. And, you know, we, we also see this in institutional portfolios as well, with, you know, the likes of CalPERS now looking at using a bit of leverage in their portfolio. And I think we'll probably hear more and more about it. So, um, you know, absolutely, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good idea. I think it comes back to something we touched on uh, a couple of uh, episodes ago, and it's just certainly come up in the allocator series. The idea of you know d- building a diversified portfolio in the first instance, you know, that's what modern portfolio theory would tell you. And you know, I mentioned uh, kind of Tobin separation theorem before. You know, you figure out wh- what's the right asset mix, and then secondly, decide how much leverage you want to have in the portfolio. So from the same perspective, it makes sense to combine different um, risk premia, so asset class risk premia versus you know, if you want to call trend of a factor risk premium or whatever you want to call it, but it's something uncorrelated. So it certainly makes sense to combine them in a portfolio. And then the second question is, what's your risk tolerance? Or, you know, how much um, how much do you want to hold? And, and, and obviously the fact that managed futures and trend following is done on leverage and in futures lends itself to getting that leverage. You don't have to go and borrow uh, and then have all of those kind of issues around having a bank loan and possible refinancing risk, etc. So futures trading really, really lends itself to this type of approach. I think the other aspect of this that why it became popular in the last few years was maybe a little bit of a bull market phenomenon in the sense that, you know, certainly my experience, if you go back to the end of the, you know, 2019, maybe 2019, the end of the last decade, we'd had such a strong run for the S&P and beta, you know, people were reluctant to diversify because it was a perceived opportunity cost of diversifying. So if you could hold on to your beta and get to diversification as an overlay, then that was seen as attractive. So I think that was another part of the narrative as to why we're hearing um, a bit more about this. But um, yeah, I, I think in terms of the question, you know, how much makes sense, obviously the key thing you want to do with these, with, with kind of any return stacked portfolio or any levered portfolio is to ensure that you have diversification, you know, and I mean, not to rely on, I, I guess, past correlation. I mean, if you just levered up the 60-40 portfolio, you'd be in the midst of, of a deep drawdown this year because, you know, obviously equities are down, bonds are down. So you want to have strategies there that, that you have, you know, economic reasons why they're going to be uncorrelated. And obviously, trend following lends itself to that because historically, I, I, I had a quick look, it has been negatively correlated with small caps. It's been negatively correlated over the long term, uh, slightly negatively with, with most equity indices, I would say. So certainly trend following lends itself to that. How much could you do 100%? I, I think you could. I mean, obviously, if you have 100% 
how do, I, I, you know, practically, how do you get 100% in small cap exposure? You Presumably, you have to buy those stocks. So then where do you get your extra cash uh, to, for, for your managed futures? Do you have to borrow? I'm not sure what he, what, he, what, what he's getting at exactly. But if you if you get your equity exposure via futures, then you have plenty of uh, spare cash to, to invest either in a managed futures program or a fund or whatever. So I think you could... Um, Certainly do 100% equities um, via futures and another 100%. I mean, a lot of this depends on uh, what vol your managed futures would run at. The, the thing is that with that portfolio, because of the correlation, the volatility would, would actually, um, uh, you know, n- n- not be, uh, it might actually come down uh, because of the dampening effect of, of the managed futures. Um, do, I think there's a few other things you have to think about within this, and it kind of depends on your utility function. Um, the big risk with this type of uh, approach is that you get a 2018 type scenario. So you might remember 2017 low vol in equities. So on your trend side, you were levering up your equity exposure. Uh, and then you had your core long equities from your uh, passive beta side. So coming into 2018, you would have been very exposed to long equities, and then you get a sharp reversal like we saw in February 18. So if you're not comfortable with that type of drawdown, you say you're more worried about risk of ruin than volatility, but sharp drawdowns like that can be painful with, with a strategy like this. And actually, my experience around this is that some investors who do do this or variants of this were kind of quite focused on this risk back then and it lent, led to a lot of discussion around the nature of the trend following program you might employ so some people were thinking if i'm going to run this type of strategy well one i might want to be faster with my equity or with my managed futures trend following program or two you know maybe i want to go with a capped equity beta or a capped equity exposure variant uh, and this is something that's come up uh, amongst Jerry and and the guys as well. CFM launched a product um, not so long ago that has a capped equity exposure, and I know Graham have a, a capped equity beta exposure. So there's pros and cons of that as well. But the point is that once you once you start combining these things, there are these other um, uh, considerations, certainly around speed and uh, risk allocation, and if you want to put any constraints on on from from an equity exposure perspective. So. So yes, makes sense. I think it's a good idea. I think, I think it's interesting that there is this. You know, my experience looking across Europe in particular, we have a big kind of multi-asset fund market, and there's this basic kind of concept that you just, you know, your exposures add up to a hundred percent. But obviously, there's no no real reason why it has to. You know, obviously, we can use futures for leverage and for capital efficiency. But when you say that, I think naturally people get cautious. You know, futures risky uh, derivatives. You know, but. But it's 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 knowing how to manage the risk, um, and that's by incorporating proper diversification, um, and then and and then being comfortable with the um, with the with the, with, the, with the with normal ups and downs in it. So so I think there's a lot to think about in there, but certainly it's it's an absolutely valid approach. Yeah, no, absolutely. <clears throat> Hearing you talk about that, it reminds me actually of another thing that happened when we were doing all of this work back in the nineties. At Jerry's shop, and um, and one of my other colleagues there, a guy called Tom, he had this great one-liner um, that he came up with back then, and I really think it is worth paying attention to, because I think it's it's true. And that he says he he always said I can't remember if he used the word managed futures or trend following, but he would always go like, trend following allows you to own equities, and that's a very interesting statement if you think about it, right? Because as you rightly say, for the most part, what it's going to do, it's going to dampen your volatility and it's going to increase return. Now, that is something we've said since the early 80s when Dr. Lindner came out with his paper, right? We've been shouting that uh, for ages, uh, maybe not in the last couple of decades because it just got, you know, people didn't really want to hear us uh, uh, talk about it anymore. But it is true. And so I think that that's something that maybe people are realizing now that actually you can keep owning your equities um, if you have something else that can protect you. And the best protection um, doesn't seem to be always long volatility. Uh, Trend following is probably the the best overall uh, protection you can get uh, against a equity portfolio. But now, of course, we also see that against the fixed income portfolio. So I think that was the first thing I was um, going to say. The other thing in terms of how much, to some extent, I guess it makes sense to try and set your managed futures or trend-following exposure at probably the same level of volatility as the underlying equity portfolio you're trying to match. 
at least I know uh, uh, that we do at, at Don, we, we kind of show people what it looks like if you just had like a 50-50 portfolio of stock, uh, sorry, of uh, S&P 500 and, uh, and our WMA program. And it's just a stunning outcome. Something as simple as that is just a stunning outcome because you don't end up getting some kind of average of the two return stream. You get something that is better than any of the two return streams because of the negative correlation, I should say the non-correlation between the strategies. So, um, so it is, it is definitely something I think we'll, we'll hear more about. Um, and as you rightly say, whether it's just a different terminology and labeling that makes it more appealing to people, um, and make it sound more interesting. Sometimes we do need to come up with these labels to, uh, to get the, the response we want from, from potential investors. So, so uh, so that's great, of course, that we keep innovating in that sense. Um, the final question I just want to maybe answer as well, where Matthews asked, well, do you need a some level of volatility targeted trend-following strategy in order to do this? Um, uh, my answer here would be no. I don't think you do, because even if Jerry doesn't target volatility in his strategy per se, then you still have a pretty good idea of what the volatility of a strategy will be because he's got a long track record along with other managers would be the same. So I actually don't think you... So that part of it, I would not actually say that there's any difference. You have to evaluate the trend-following strategy based on its track record and on the methodology that's been used. You obviously have to understand whether it's been the same methodology being applied throughout the whole track record or whether it's changed over time. But other than that, no, I think you can... You can apply. You can use most trend-following strategies uh, from established managers. I would always go with an established manager, as I'm sure you, everybody knows that I would. I, I would say, especially for things like this, you need a long data set to get an idea of of whether this would work or not. Um, so, so yeah, very interesting. And then, so in addition, or in sort of following up on that, we got another question that is somewhat related. And and both of you, both of uh, us, when we looked at the question, we thought, "Mm, it's not our stronger side to discuss this topic. But Eduardo did write in, so we're going to give it our best. Um, And he writes in and say, hello, I have two questions. First, what is your opinion of adding CPPI? And I had to look that one up. It's apparently constant proportional portfolio insurance on top of trend following. Uh, I like the fact that it is a way of handling risk by looking only at your account value. Second, what is your opinion of using options on trend following to manage risk and also for constant cash flow? Thanks. So let me just deal with the second one here um, because we've talked about this many times on the podcast, uh, Eduardo. I don't, I'm not a proponent for using options in trend following. I think if you want to do trend following, do it the classical way. Don't try and be too clever. And and anything to do with constant cash cash flows, I don't think that fits into the trend-following world. If there's one thing we can say is that we don't get constant cash flows in trend-following. So don't try and enforce that on a trend-following system, in my opinion. Other people will may have different opinions, but and then that's fine. But in terms of the first question, uh, we were quite sort of quickly discussing this before we pressed record today. And 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 one of the baby the best examples we can think of just to illustrate what people for people what this might be is actually another thing that I did when I worked uh, with Jerry back in the 90s um, where if you think about it back then we had high interest rates or much higher interest rates than we have now so back then it was popular to package trend following strategies into quote unquote guaranteed products is what they were sold as where you took 80% of the money that you got from the investors, you put it into a zero coupon bond because you knew after five years that would give you $100 uh, and therefore they, they, they would get their money back. That's the guarantee. But you still had then the 20% cash left that you could then use for margin purposes and 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 therefore overlay a trend following or, or put embed an, a trend following strategy in there. All you need to make sure was not to blow up that 20% so it, went, so it would go th- below the cash level that you had. Now, I did look up CP, CPPI on, on, on the internet, and there's obviously many variations of this uh, kind of protection strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, from my perspective, at least, and I want to keep it super simple. And so I do think that, yeah, if you can do something as simple as, as a zero coupon bond, 
and then take the cash that you know for sure you will have, unless, of course, the government that that you're getting the bonds from uh, goes default. But anyways, assuming they're not, then I think that that actually works really well because, as you alluded to earlier, trend following is 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 great because we use futures and we can get the inherent leverage we need to deliver a decent return without having to uh, use all 100% cash, right? So I actually think those products work really well. Um, they don't work, of course, when there's no interest uh, to be had. You can't then do the zero-coupon bond. Personally, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, Alan, personally, I'm a little bit against making products too complicated where you start adding all sorts of other risky assets and you, you know, also your risk-less assets could be made up of different things and so on and so forth. Because do we really know what riskless is in an environment that constantly change? I'm not sure we do. But something that I could still believe in would be a zero coupon bond issued by a a reputable government. I still think that's probably riskless uh, or as riskless as it can get. But there isn't any opportunities at the moment that haven't been for, you know, many, many, many years. So that's just how I see it. So I'm not against the idea. I just think the environment right now doesn't really give us any opportunities. Um, So I'll let you comment on that. And maybe if you want you can talk a little bit about the other question that Eduardo had, which is something about roll, rolling, uh, when to roll, uh, and so on and so forth. And then we'll dive into your papers. Sure. Yeah. No, I think I, I haven't um, massive uh, experience of CPPI structures. I have come across them in some structured products before, um, and that's typically, I think, where they seem to be used. And as you say, it's kind of combining a risk asset or a risky exposure uh, and, a, and, a, and a so-called risk-free exposure. So um, I'm, I'm not, it doesn't, I, I'd agree with you, it doesn't strike me as something um, that naturally necessarily fits with, 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 with a managed futures portfolio. Not to say it, it, it couldn't be applied to it, but as you say, in the current environment, obviously rates have been very low. So a lot of these structured products didn't work so well with, when you didn't have much of a, a coupon or much a, of, a, of a discounted rate. If you go back, as you say, to the 1980s and 90s when rates were higher, we tended to see more of these types of structures where you could either, as you say, take that uh, spare cash that you don't need to buy the zero coupon bond and either use that as margin or else use it to buy an option was the other way. Um, so I, I know Man used to have a big business in terms of structured products as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think at lower rates of, of interest, you know, that becomes less attractive because you've less capital to play with. Um, my experience with CPPI structures is you often found that, you know, on the risky side, they could ultimately get stopped out and you wouldn't have any exposure then. Obviously, that would that depends on how you calibrate them in terms of the risk. So yeah, I, I don't have much more insight apart from that, that I haven't had great experiences with them, but um yeah, that's not to say they couldn't work, in, particularly in a higher rate environment, I guess. And in terms of the rolling... Um, um, yeah, the roll question was interesting. So, so the roll question then was about um, basically is it, when's the best time to roll the futures contract? And, and actually, uh, Eduardo raises an interesting point that could there be a possibly illiquidity premium from rolling later, which is an interesting idea. I mean, what you typically find is that that, that, that traders will, will roll as the... Um, the, the open interest and volume shifts into the the kind of the second year contract, uh, so you th- th- that's kind of an industry standard. You know, some some managers then have kind of I suppose what you call alpha strategies around the role. You know, so if you go back, um, you know. 10 years ago, there used to be a lot of money in, in index commodities, uh, long only via futures, and they all had the role. And then people became aware of that over time. So anticipating those roles uh, is is part of what some managers do. And there's a more generalized uh, set of strategies that, that come from what you might call institutional friction. So, 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 so that traders or certain types of managers or asset managers have to roll their exposure and people try and anticipate that. So on the illiquidity premium by being later, the one, uh, the one idea and, and thought that came to mind around that was crude oil uh, in 2020. So you, you might remember crude oil went negative right, like right on the last couple of days before, um, before uh, expiry. Yeah. Uh, but most people would have been out of the contract at that stage and had rolled into the second. So if you had actually stayed short uh, the front contract. You, you know, you you would have captured all of that move down. So it's an interesting idea. So there, there might be that um, 
that illiquidity, as you say. I haven't looked at it, but it is something that I'm sure people uh, research. Bigger managers, obviously won't find that attractive because they get out because of the liquidity so they don't want to be vulnerable to these kind of erratic moves close to the final couple of days uh where you know liquidity dries liquidity dries up and then obviously the ultimate risk is you might have to deliver so that's nobody wants that scenario so yeah possibly um i haven't i haven't heard of it uh, but it's certainly something that 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 that, that there could be in, in existence have you yeah. uh, you any experience of that no i mean <clears throat> I guess my general view is the following, that we are stewards of other people's money, and I just don't think we should take those kind of risks. I don't think that's what we're being paid for, frankly, to take uh, illiquidity risk. Certainly not in managed futures. We, we we say that we are a very liquid strategy, so to get into anything that's not liquid, frankly, to me, is a bit irresponsible if you're doing it for other people's money. Um, so I'm not a big fan of that, even though I know that there might be a little bit of alpha somewhere to be found, but there could probably also be a lot of uh, uh, other issues. And generally speaking, I would say that I think one of the challenges that w- investors are facing uh, going forward is actually liquidity. I think that it's being repriced. Uh, I saw some headlines uh, this week uh, you mentioned Calpers earlier t- uh, today, and I remember that they were talking about uh, uh, maybe a year or two ago that they would add leverage in general to some of their investments and they would just buy more of the stuff they had. But then I saw a headline this week where they had to get out of a lot of private equity stuff at very low prices because clearly there's very low prices at the moment for, for mm. these things. So so this is what I'm concerned about. And actually, if I'm... If I take off my trend-following hat for a second and say, what what are some of the risks? I've mentioned this before. One of the risks that I see going forward with all of the things happening uh, in in the world is actually liquidity in in various assets. And of course, we know trend-following because it's liquid, it's on exchange, and 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 so on and so forth. It has in the past often been used as kind of a way to raise cash, certainly during COVID and certain other crises. Um, because other strategies simply couldn't provide that speedy conversion to cash for investors, so they used their managed futures part. And I don't think we really get the praise we should for being able to deliver, you know, not only the transparency, but also the liquidity uh, in the strategy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. And if, if, if you believe in, as I kind of tend to do, that we may see the reversal of the last 20, 30 years, as interest rates starts to rise more secularly and as deglobalization maybe takes a hold, then you would also think that in terms of an investment, that many of the things that have worked well in the past are the things that are not going to work so well in the future. And that could be some of these less liquid strategies that people have just enjoyed for the last 20, 30 years with uh, lower yields and and nobody asking any questions because all traditional assets just went up. Uh, we may see uh, some some change to that. So um, yeah, I'm not a I'm again. I just like trend follows to make money from trends. Yeah, and, I think and, I, th- yeah. I think you're right. It's not it's not something that managers are being paid to do. I mean, you you invest in in a, in a managed futures program for the directional trading characteristics and not to kind of extract an illiquidity premium for sure. So I think that's that's a good point. Yeah. All right, Alan, it's um, almost over to you now because you've got some uh, topics you wanted to discuss and I I am um, not entirely sure where you want to go with this, so I will just try and uh, listen carefully and and add a few uh hopefully thoughtful comments along the way. So uh, where, where are we going to go today, Alan? Yeah, so I mean, I've kind of three papers that um, that, that, that kind of link together, I, I guess. Um, one that I, that I wrote myself, um, just posted on, on our website uh, yesterday, um, kind of more just describing some of the interesting features of the current market environment from um, a, a kind of a macro and market perspective. And then 
a couple of papers on asset allocation, one from, from Bridgewater and one from Rubico, which tie into that and, and this whole narrative that, that, you know, that maybe this risk of a more prolonged stagflationary environment um, might be underestimated and, and, you know, what that means for, for, for returns. So, you know, first of all, in terms of my, my own paper, you know, it really struck me recently, as you were saying, that, that there is an unusually high degree of uncertainty out there at the moment. I know it's a bit of a cliche to say, oh, the outlook is uncertain. It always is. But, um, uh, you know, um, one of the things that, that I saw is that, you know, JP Morgan were calling for potential of crude oil going to $380, while in the same week, Citibank were forecasting $65, you know. So it's pretty pretty big spread of opinion there. And then in terms of the rate outlook, I saw, I saw some people calling for the Fed to be cutting rates by, by year end. And equally, you know, there's others out there saying that the Fed might have to go ultimately to maybe 8%. So again, this massive spread of, of opinion. And I think a lot of that is, is reflecting the fact that um, we're in an unusual cycle here, and there's I think there's three big uncertainties at the moment. One, you know, clearly it looks like the economy is going to slow, but how much is it going to slow in response to monetary tightening? And then two, how much is inflation going to come down in response to weaker growth? And then three, I think there is also an uncertainty, although it's not really been acknowledged in the market yet, about where does the Fed ultimately want to get inflation down to? Obviously, they're still saying 2%, but is that really the case? So just, you know, why why is it so uncertain at the moment? And I think one of the reasons for that is, if you look at this cycle versus past tightening cycles, there's a few reasons that make it very different. One, obviously... The big thing is that in the past, in the last couple of decades, the Fed has always been tightening preemptively. So, you know, core CPI, core PC was always 3% or less at the start of the tightening cycle. And it was about, okay, cooling the economy to make sure that inflation didn't get out of hand. In this cycle, inflation has already got out of hand. The genie's out of, out of the bottle. Um, so that, that that's the first thing. So we're into a cycle where the Fed is actually trying to, to actively slow the economy to bring um, uh, inflation down. A corollary of that is because inflation's already gone up, the starting point is one of dramatically negative real interest rates. So obviously based on CPI, you know, real interest rates would be, what, minus 7% or so. Even if you take the core PCE, you know, you're still looking at minus 3 4%, which is very unusual relative to the recent history. And, you know, in standard economic textbooks, it's all about real interest rates. Now, whether that's right or wrong, we, we don't know. But, but you know, it's, it's, an, a, very, um, it's a very stimulative uh, starting point. Um, the other thing uh, now, what we're seeing is because the Fed was slow to to to, to um, get started, they're now kind of catching up. So we're actually seeing rates going up at the fastest pace uh, going back. You know, we haven't seen 25, 50, 75, you know, based on, on the monthly average. This is a faster pace of tightening that we've seen going back, you know, back to the 1980s. So this is this is unusual. So how do you balance the fact that on the one hand, rates are really low, they're, 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 they're negative in real terms. They're signs, clearly, as you say, of, of a slowing economy. We can see that in you know, the housing market. You can see it in the ISM, New Orders Index. Uh, you can see it in a lot of these forward indicators. But at the same time, um, you know, unemployment is still, still low and the labour market is still hot. And net-net, and, uh, what the market is saying, the, the market expects rates to get to about 3.5% if you look at Eurodollar futures, but then to be rate cuts by next year. So, you know, does that look reasonable? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think the experience of 2018, 2019, where the Fed was tightening and then cutting seven months later, I think that's in the market's mind. And they think, OK, that's going to be the scenario. But, you know, uh, given the uncertainty around uh, all of those factors, the fact that, yeah, uh, you've got kind of got pros and cons on, on each side, I think it's very hard to say, you know, with any great, great precision, you know, how much growth is going to slow. Clearly, the Fed wants growth to slow, but they don't want it to go to b- below zero. So I think that's the first big uncertainty and, and lots of um, lots of uh, kind of debate about that. The second thing is is really about this relationship between inflation and unemployment, um, and it, you know it's, it's it's captured in the Phillips curve. And anybody studying economics will know that the Phillips curve is a hotly debated topic in in economics, going back to the you know right through the history of macroeconomics, and used to be a, a you know very stable upward sloping uh, curve back in the nineteen sixties, and then 
the the policymakers thought it could take advantage of that and you know bring inflation bring unemployment down uh, uh, to to live at a certain level of inflation and then what you got in the 1970s is people anticipated these policy actions and inflation started to rise and you had stagflation um Central bankers then became aware of this and started to inflation target, and they 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 managed to, um, I suppose, flatten the Phillips curve was their per- perception. And if you go back to 2019, a group of uh, academics wrote a paper. You know, is the Phillips curve gone or is it hibernating? And so my perspective on this is it's back. If you actually plot the relationship between unemployment and inflation, it looks a lot more like the 1960s now than than than, than it has at any point. So the question is. You know, historically, what what economists would ask is how low can you get unemployment without pushing inflation up too much? But at the moment, the question you have to ask yourselves is, well, how high do we have to push unemployment to get inflation back down? And the interesting thing is, if you look, if you look back to history, like say, if you go back to, I went and looked at all of the recessions back in the 1960s, 70s, and really in those recessions, you know, the unemployment rate rose by you know two and a half percent between 1969 and 1970, and the CPI hardly budged. Of course, CPI actually rose. Um, CPI itself was down 30, 30 basis points. So if we're back into that kind of more like 1960s, 1970s environment, the point is that the cost in terms of unemployment could be much greater than the market is anticipating. And I think that's important because at the moment, we've had this unusual situation that there's been widespread political support for higher rates. You know, Biden has behind it, Democrats, everybody is in, in, you know, tackling inflation as number one priority. That's fine in in a, in a strong economy, but if you start to see inflation rising by two, three percent, will that political support remain? So I think that's a, an important point that's been underestimated by, by by the market, and that leads you to the final point. Well, then, you know, ultimately, if that cost starts to become more apparent in terms of higher unemployment, how low does the Fed really want to get inflation down to? They're still saying 2%. But there was an article recently from Paul Krugman um, saying, you know, how low must inflation go? And his point was, you know, from an, an economic perspective, there was never really any strong basis for 2% for these inflation targets, rather than 3% or 4% or 5%. It was just that that was what was picked. And now we've got to maintain credibility by keeping it at that level. But um, back in 2010, uh, the, the Olivier Blanchard, who was the chief economist at the IMF, wrote a paper arguing for 4% as, as a better inflation target. And the reason for that is obviously when you get into a financial crisis, if you have a higher level of inflation, you can bring real interest uh, to a more negative stance. One of the challenges we've had in the last 10 years is real net rates couldn't go that negative because you brought nominal rates to zero and, and uh, it, you know, inflation stayed low. So real rates could, couldn't get negative. So I think this is something that, 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 that is going to come back into the market that people will start to say, do we really need to get back to 2% or would 3% or 4% be okay? Uh, and I think that's something that is underestimated by the market because if you look at five-year, five-year, four inflation uh, expectations that they've come back down still in the range we've seen for the last 10 years so the market is pretty sanguine on inflation the market is saying okay inflation is going to be a problem this year and will normalize maybe next year the year after but longer term it's not a problem but um that seems to be uh, reflecting an awful lot of complacency and i could really see a good case where the politicians start to you know, lose their um, resolve, and then that influences the, the central bankers. And I think what that could mean from our perspective is, you know, the Fed's talking about being humble and nimble, and that means probably more reactive to the immediate data as opposed to kind of forward projections. So that to me means more volatility, probably more opportunities for, for macro and uh, and directional uh, strategies like, like trend following. So kind of, um, yeah, maybe a long-winded way of getting to the same point that we, we like to make that, you know, trend following is, is a good strategy for this environment. But but I do think certainly there's lots of aspects of the current environment in terms of, you know, the, 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 this tightening cycle that are very different from what we've seen in the last two decades and much more like what we saw in the 19 19- late 60s, 70s and 80s. And actually, I'm starting to do some more work in the 70s. It's it's early days. I'm going to write something on it soon. But there is this perception that, you know, the 70s, it was this inflation burst. It was all linked to the oil crises. But actually, we saw the first burst in inflation in the early 1970s. It was very similar to what we're seeing now, very much commodity-led. By the end of the 1970s, it was a very different type of inflation. It was being driven by um, a lot of 
uh, bank credit and borrowing and people were just the inflationary psychology became so embedded that people were borrowing to to consume to so that they could consume ahead of price rises so i think I think it, it's not a simple case that, oh, we just had an oil crisis and a wage price spiral. We had different types of inflations as you went through the 1970s. And so expecting just one surge in inflation now and then everything to normalize seems to be uh, a, a, maybe a bit naive uh, from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, lots, lot of things to unpack in in all of those statements. I'll just give you some of my thoughts uh, as they come 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 to me uh, when when I hear you speak. Well, first of all, just just in terms of um, uh, you know comparing these periods to historical periods, I think in itself is troublesome, right? Because you know, first of all, uh, can we compare? Uh, the current FOMC uh, board with what was in the 70s. I mean, they're different human beings. They're they're going to be reacting differently. And even you can just compare the Fed and probably other central banks, uh, you know, how they change over time. So at the moment, I would say the um, sentiment that I get is that they would rather have a policy error by tightening too much, right? That's kind of the framework. If we're going to be wrong, we're going to be wrong by tightening too much, right? But only a few years ago, that was complete opposite. If we're, they, you know, if we're going to be wrong, we're going to, you know, we better lower interest rates a bit too much, you know. So th- those kind of shifts, subtle as they may be, are quite important to pick up on. That, that That's one thing. The other thing that I find uh, interesting uh, is that when we compare to uh, previous periods of of inflation, we just talk about inflation. But I think that there are two types of inflation. Uh, There's the predictable level of inflation where it's kind of constant. You know it's going to be there. You can calculate it into your business models and you can price your projects accordingly and and you kind of you'll be okay and you're okay with also committing long-term investments because you have something you can put into your own planning, uh, so to speak. And then you have the unpredictable inflation, which is what really makes it difficult to get any company to make long-term investments because they really don't know what to plan for economically. And I'm not an expert, but I get the sense that the 70s were more unpredictable than the 40s, which is another era where people are comparing. Um, now, I worry personally that the inflation we are, or the inflationary regime we're in right now is the unpredictable inflation. So I can easily see uh, these things change a lot. And and I also worry that the reaction pattern from central banks will be driven by very short-term data, really, which will make things even more unpredictable, so to speak. It's going to sort of uh, uh, in, in reinforce the whole uh, feedback loop. So again, that's another thing to to put into the discussion. I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on that. Thirdly, I would say another thing that's very different from any of the previous periods, I, 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 as far as I'm, I can tell, is debt levels. I mean, how are we going to compare ourselves to a, a you know period where we had very little debt in general, uh, and now, where we can't afford, uh, in, you know, interest rate levels to go back to "quote unquote" the norm because it's going to be so expensive for companies and governments to pay for their liabilities uh, that they have built up. And then you mentioned also unemployment, and I'm again thinking here: well, can we, can we even compare what is unemployment today when you have so many people who work for several? Employers, they're they're freelance people. They they get their jobs on Fiverr or some other other website where they just pick up jobs. I mean, you know, how can we even compare a period uh, like today with a period in the seventies and 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 the forties and even the eighties and the nineties where people were employed by one firm at a time and where you know we we didn't have the type of economy we have now i think that's also a challenge uh, and it's a difference and i think it's important so i don't even know where to begin um this is where this is why i said to you before that i'm so grateful really that we as trend followers don't have to try and and make sense of all these different forces all we need to do is to look at the price and keep that as as our focus. So that's kind of how I feel about it. I think there's so many things that are, uh, you know, 
that we have no idea how how they're going to no, evolve. Yeah. And you can, yeah. on top of that, by the way, Alan, on top of that, you can, of course, add geopolitics, climate change, yes. uh, all of the above, uh, you know, where we have no idea, really. Yeah, uh, where so you're right. And, and, and I think that's something that came up with the, in, the, in the minutes, when you're, to your point about that shift from, from the Fed. They're talking about their the risk management approach. It's something which they talked about before. It's like, you know, okay, you don't know what the future is, but what based on a risk management approach, it's, as you say, it had been prudent to be easier. Now it's been prudent to be more more tighter. Um, I, I suppose my, my thinking is on, on all of this is that it's it, the, the, the central bankers have a bit of a sweet spot at the moment in terms of tightening and there's no adverse impact yet. But what about when we, if and when we get to recession um, and how, you know, how challenging is that for people? And then, if you don't get that fall in in in, in inflation in response to those that weaker economic scenario, for for it could be for lots of reasons. It could be because of supply constraints. It could be because wage demands grow, or it could be for random situations like geopolitics for all of those reasons. That's where you get the more of a policy dilemma, um, and and I think that's where it gets interesting because and, and I think that's what you saw in the seventies as well. And that this is more of a behavioural thing that I don't think changes. Is that yeah, it's, when it's easy to do something, people do it, and when it gets hard, will the resolve still be there? And, and how does that play out? Well, just on your point about these these oil predictions, where people, some people are predicting three hundred and sixty dollar oil if 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 really things uh, starts to to escalate in terms of Russia and the energy crisis, et cetera, et cetera, and other people say sixty dollars, et cetera, et cetera. We only have to go back two months where there were a lot of people talk about this commodity super cycle and everybody was going to jump on that bandwagon and and um, and, and so on and so forth. We even had, you know, uh, a guest on the series uh, where they run a, a long, broad commodity index. And of course, they were saying that they were seeing tremendous interest from all these pension funds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, lo and behold, um, pretty much ever since that conversation, uh, commodity prices have gone down, not by a little, but but, but by a lot. So it shows you how difficult it is to predict anything, I think. And this is also why I think a lot of investors end up getting getting it wrong and having these bad experiences because they jump in uh, at the wrong time and they'll probably close close out some of these uh, exposures at the, at the wrong time as well. So I think that's that's really interesting. But it does beg the question. I don't know whether that's in the other paper you refer to as well. Mm. But that comes. What it all comes down to is: so, what do investors do? How do we build portfolios for different regimes? And so, if 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 you have some some thoughts yeah. on that, um, yeah, I mean it, that, that 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 basically comes to the Bridgewater paper, which is about building a better beta portfolio in an environment that looks difficult for assets. And basically what really um, struck me about this paper is that they say, uh, you know, basically they're saying, like as we are, that the markets are, you know, facing drastically different circumstances, as they say. And they have a chart in here that basically says that the the risk of stagflation is at the highest in 100 years. Now, they don't go into how the chart is constructed, um, but my, my reading of it is that it's 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 probably looking at maybe their growth estimates versus what the market is discounting in terms of earnings growth and their inflation forecast versus what's inflected in, in kind of tips and, and inflation expectations. And based on that, the market is significantly underpricing the risk of stagflation. Um, and obviously Bridgewater have this um, all-weather approach of a balanced portfolio. And, you know, they, they do make the very valid point that, you know, the kind of typical or traditional portfolio, what you see, you know, most uh, maybe in or you know typical asset allocation plan is like you know 50 percent 60 percent equities 20 percent bonds credit emerging market bonds a few hedge funds etc those typical portfolios are biased towards you know they they're favored by better than expected growth and lower than expected inflation that's the best scenario for those types of of, of portfolios so if you get the opposite then obviously your, your traditional portfolios are going to underperform so uh, th- their whole message then is around better balance which is the all-weather portfolio and i mean the big difference from their perspective is obviously having that balance with the higher inflation protection via commodities and tips now tips are another interesting one because they've obviously 
you know, struggled this year as well because obviously their fixed income instruments and real yields have risen. So tips actually haven't done that well in the, in the last few months. But obviously you got the benefit from 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 the commodity side. So th- this is all about a, a, a beta portfolio. But I, I think when you look at their paper, you could take all of those arguments and use them as arguments for incorporating trend following, um, you know, as, as another way in, in the first instance for getting commodity exposure. And as you say, it's a managed commodity exposure, not long only. Uh, so, so, so you're getting that benefit. But all of those reasons um, are, are, are reflected. And this this kind of fits in nicely with, with the final paper from Robico, which um, they look at different uh, the performance of different asset classes and factor premia in different inflationary regimes. So, so they they they, they go back to eighteen seventy five in their paper. Um, interestingly, uh, you know they they showed a number of inflationary periods which they define as more than four percent in that in uh, that whatever that is you know one hundred and fifty year period and. I think there's like 45 or 44 years are, are actually, which feels like a lot. It just shows you that how unusual the last kind of few decades have been in terms of being low inflation. But again, they point out, obviously, the tough performance of traditional assets in those in the stagflationary periods. And they look at different um, what they call factor premia, like value factor uh, and inequities and in bonds, and then kind of what they call global factor. So so the, the trend momentum in the global factor is the equivalent of trend following. It's a very simple trend signal. But what's interesting is really when you look at their data is how robust trend following performance is across different regimes. It's, a str- it's almost as strong in all of the, the regimes. It's best, obviously, well, not obviously interestingly, what we would guess in a high inflation period, and that's that's consistent with the the, the paper from Man that was out last year about the, the the best of strategies for inflationary times. Very much consistent with that. But it is interesting how well the trend momentum positive also in deflationary environments too, uh, and actually they, they break it down into within the inflationary and deflationary periods, periods of recession, earnings up and down, equities up and down, rates up and down, inflation up and down, and actually, you know, momentum is positive in each of these subcategories as well. So um, yet more evidence in favour of trend, but certainly strong evidence in favour of if you're in the stagflationary um, episode, which is basically, you know, in their in their paper, high inflation and in a recession, equities in that type of environment are down seven percent in in in, in um, on average seven uh, percent per annum, um, whereas uh, momentum strategies are up seven point three percent. So so there's the evidence, there's the the, the support. What do you do for a stagflationary uh, environment? Um, so I think um, yeah. A lot of a lot of people coming to the same conclusion. If this is really something that is an underappreciated risk, it's more more um, uh, evidence in favour of incorporating trend strategies. Yeah, it's funny when I hear you say that. Um, you know, it, it obviously kind of suggests that trend following is a strategy for all occasions, right? And that's obviously something that we believe and and have done for for decades. But again, it just strikes me when I when I hear you say it of how little you know, or how few people have adapted that uh, as their philosophy as well in the institutional space. Maybe this time will be different and people will come to it. Um, who, who knows? But it is striking that with all these uh, papers and evidence that comes forward that it has not made its way uh, further into uh, institutional portfolios. And then when it does make it into an institutional portfolio, it ends up having like a 2 or 3% allocation where you kind of think... Ah, it doesn't really matter if you do it or not. Um, so, uh, but there are a few, and 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 obviously we're kind of trying to get some of them on the allocator series, um, where there are pension funds who have really made it a, a much more of a core allocation, especially inside their risk mitigation buckets. Um, and I remember my conversation a few years back with uh, Carrie Lowe at Calsters. Um, so if Carrie, you're listening, we definitely want you back and give us an update on that because it is it is important to have some practitioners who have gone now through a, a couple of different uh, environments to talk about their experience uh, and maybe that will be what convinces other institutions to uh, 
to take the next step um, because that is another <laughs> we talk about uncertain things uh, I mean that's another uncertainty and that is how our pension funds and other groups that rely on having to pay out and to meet liabilities how are they going to do that if they are already underfunded and now you have a period of time where perhaps both equities and bonds might underperform uh, as they did in the 60s and 70s. Um, that, and obviously that, high, high inflation then influences the, right? um, the their liabilities as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So definitely worth um, staying close to that um, debate. Anything else you kind of want to add um, before we wind down for today? Um, anything that we've missed from, from these papers or any kind of... No, I think that was it. I mean, um, as I say, the... Uh, a lot of evidence and, and research all pointing to in the same direction and say, you know, that the market is maybe a bit complacent on this stuff. Uh, so, it, you know, it struck me, I, 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 the Wall Street Journal had an article yesterday about, you know, different strategists' views and the equity market. And yeah, it seemed to be a lot of optimism around. I was surprised, to be honest, a lot of people saying, you know, inflation is peaking and, uh, you know, rates rates are going lower and, you know, uh, things are going to be okay pretty soon. Well, there's, the there's, two, there's two things to say to that, Alan, and that is one is that we have to always remember that most of the people who are talking about these things today and most of the people who are managing money uh, today are people who have only experienced the kind of 2% inflation target and, and central banks achieving that, right? They have no... They've never tried uh, five, six, let alone 10% inflation environments. So it's that, I think, human natural bias towards things staying the same um, that we see reflected in all of those comments. So that that is not surprising to me, um, which is also why I think they are criminally under, uh, unprepared for what's coming. So um, which which is which is scary, frankly. Um, I can't remember the other point I wanted to make about that, but it's probably not that important. <laughs> sure, we'll get it next time. I'm sure I'll remember it in like thirty <laughs> seconds when we end up this. Uh, conversation but no thanks for for all the prep work uh, alan and uh, taking us through these papers um they're definitely important and um and i will uh, i will of course link to your uh, post on the in the show notes today where people can go and and, and read uh, more about it um I think that's going to do it for now. We are, of course, grateful if any one of you would go and leave a rating and review in iTunes and Spotify. That always helps. Next week, I'm joined by Rich. Um, so we're going to go into some hardcore, I think, trend-following concepts, perhaps. We'll see. Depends also very much on the questions that we receive uh, from all of you. So if you could send them early in the week, that would be great. Info at toptradersonplug.com is where you would send them, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them. And... Um, I think that's pretty much it from Alan and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.